the story of the golden calf is this, perhaps the central story. In that story, so we come, Moshe comes down the mountain in the version that we have in Sefer Shemot. Let's find the page. The page is on 300 and 100 and we we'll starts on 183, but it moves forward over the next several pages. 183, he's informed when he's up on the mountain that the people have made for themselves a golden calf. The building of the golden calf is described in chapter 32. And the important point, I think, is to emphasize the, the making of the golden calf is done in Moshe's absence. It's obvious in the Chumash that if Moshe is there, it never happens. That's how the story begins. And it's, I would say, in two levels. First of all, the initial idea of making a golden calf is specifically to replace Moshe. Because Moshe's, the man, is missing. So we can't have a man, a human, who's going to represent God's interests or be our teacher or connect us to God. We need something different. And secondly, one gets the sense that were Moshe there, they would never do this because he would never permit it. He wouldn't do what Aaron does, which is to say, okay, I mean, Aaron gives in to them, whatever his thinking is, and we can, and the Medrash tries to, just try to justify him, but the Medrash tries to explain, which is not the same as justifying, and the truth is that what the Medrash says can be read into the text. The Medrash is not just inventing it. In the text itself, you can see that he's wrestling with this issue how on one hand to keep the people loyal to to God, to Moshe to the Ten Commandments and all that at the same time he sees where they are and he's trying somehow to navigate that that's the sense you have with Aaron both in terms of what he does initially and also in terms of what he says to Moshe afterwards and what he says to Moshe afterwards Moshe confronts him afterwards in our story on page 185 chapter 32 much later Moshe sees the people and he sees what's going on he breaks the tablets and then he says to Aaron on top of 185 what did they do to you? what did they do to you? that you brought upon them this great sin that's what Moshe says so he questions Aaron questions are usually critiques. They're, sometimes they're really questions. But in this case, it doesn't sound like just a question. How could they say, what, how could this, how could you do such a thing? What is, what, he puts it in terms of what did they do to you to make you do this? Which is, in other words, and we know they actually did something to him. And that's interesting. You want, you want to make a comment before? You want to say something? Well, to me, it seems so much like a, as a mother watching children or watching people are frightened. The question is, the people being frightened is true. The question is, that, that's why you need leadership. We need leadership to, exactly to right. in that situation, to and know what the right they, thing. What they did to Aaron must have been, they must have been, that fright must have just like, I don't know. Well, exactly. it says what they did to Aaron. 
It actually says, they said, They intimidated him, is what it says. They stood around him, as opposed to approaching him respectfully, which is what Moshe had said earlier. If you have a problem, approach Aaron and Chur respectfully. And it says, They gather about him. There's a sense, one can read it, and I think it's the Pshat, that they are somehow intimidating him. What Moshe supposedly says, what did they do to you that, you that you brought upon them this sin? The impression, the implication is they must have threatened you, they threatened to kill you. What did they do to you? That's why the Medrash reads in that the other guy, Chur, who was left, was killed by them. The Medrash is reading that in, in a certain sense, because it sees it's a question of intimidation. So what, they must have intimidated you in some way, and the text does say they gathered about him, so the Medrash takes it one step beyond, which is to say, not only did they gather about him, but the other guy that was left, they actually did kill. Now, it's not in the text. Bechur is missing in the text, that's true. We don't know why he's missing. But the point of Moses' question is already a critique. I mean, can you explain this to me, how this could happen, is what he's saying. And then Aaron gives his answer. And the answer is very instructive. Of course, it's not about Aaron, it's about Moses, but the instructive, because it's by contrast to Moshe. His answer is a very important answer. He says, Those words are, should be underlined. You know that the people, he says, are bura. Ra means bad, evil. They're in a bad way, they're in a bad state. So what Aaron is saying is that it's not that I did something to them, or they did something to me, is that I deal with the reality of who they are. So the reality is, these are people that left Egypt, and the word Ra is actually a very interesting word in this context, um, because the word Ra is used earlier in the Chumash. It's what Pharaoh said to Moses, you have bad intentions. Moses says, who do you want to take with you? Oh, everybody, says Moshe, the men, the women, the children. Aaron says, so Pharaoh says, get out. He says, I can see that you, you're, before you is ra'ah's evil. You have bad intentions. And the word ra appears in several other contexts. So the word ra is a loaded word in the story. You know the way the people are kibirahu. We also take note of the fact that ra is the name of the Egyptian sun god. The primary god of Egypt is named, actually named ra. And the 10th plague is darkness. God had said it would smite the Egyptian gods. So one way to read it is you know that they are bara, which means the people are, in a sense, not just in a bad place. One might even add that to a certain extent, their people are basically still connected to, to the culture of, 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 uh, of Mitzrayim. That's, what, that's the given. That's the given. So the question is, how do you deal with that? So Aaron says... The way I dealt with it was to go down to their level. When they said, and then that's his first point. The second point is, they said to me, make us a God that will go before us. Moses is missing. That's all true. I said, who has gold? And they took it off and gave it to me. I threw it into the fire, and this calf came out. It makes it sound like magic somehow. When the text clearly before said it wasn't magic, he sculpted it with a sculpting tool. But what he means to say, if we want to give him the benefit of the doubt, what he wants to say is, I mean, there is an evasion of responsibility, there's no question, but what he's saying, the, the, the truthful piece of it is, what he's saying is, this is what came out. You, you walk down the mountain, you see people dancing around a golden calf and bowing down to it, 
this is not my intention, this is not what happened in the beginning. I never had a clue this was going to happen. I, yes, they are in a bad place, whatever. I was trying maybe to delay them, to store them, or whatever, and I had no under- thought that this would actually end up the way it did. That, that's what Aaron is saying, basically. That's Aaron. Now Moshe is, now the Torah says what Moshe sees in verse 25, the next pasuk on page 185, Moshe saw the people were parua. What does parua mean? Parua means they were wild. They were not, they, without, without sage or without order, yeah? It's related to the word, same root as the word ra, you mean? I'm not the same root, but it's the word that's probably a play on the word ra. Parua and ra is not in the dictionary connected, but is maybe in the text connected. Uh, and then the end of the verse is, Kifro'o Aaron Lushim Sabakamayam. That's actually an important verse. For Aaron had made them wild. Pro'o. But you can see the word pro'o, if you know your Hebrew, the, the normal way to write the word pro'o would be pay, raise, I, and vav. Para'oto. Pro'o. In Hebrew you have very often contractions. Right? Pro'o is two words. Para'oto. With a vav. The Hebrew text we have before us has a hey. Pay, raise, I, and hey, which is called the archaic hey. And sometimes you have a hey. Normally the hey is a vav in, in the Hebrew of the Bible. Sometimes it's a, they keep the hay. But the word pro, in this case, was kept, no doubt, for a different reason. Because when you read the word pay resh, I and hay, what is pay resh, I and hay? Pay resh, I and hay. Paro. 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 I say it's paro. Keep pro our own. It's a very good example of how the way the text is written carries here an additional meaning. For Aaron had made them wild, has addition. Keep pro our own, for Aaron had behaved as Pharaoh. Because Aaron is, and now, as I mentioned, I think last time, not only does Aaron behave as, as Pharaoh, that is to say, the golden calf is, is connecting you back, back, back to Mitzrayim. It's made with the gold of Egypt. So, but not only that, how did Aaron actually make the golden calf? What does the text say? How did he really make it? I threw it into the fire and it came out. Magic. He didn't make it with magic, did not make it with magic. He says he made it with magic. How did he actually make it? In reality, he sculpted. he sculpted it. What's the word for sculpt? How did he sculpt it? With what? With a sculpting tool. What is, what is the Hebrew word for sculpting tool? Chapter 32, verse number 4, page 183. Sculpting tool. Vayatsar Oto. Where's that verse? Vayatsar Oto. Bacheret. Cheret. Chet, Resh, Tet. Unusual word. Vayatsar. He sculpted it. Right? By Yatsar he created it, in this case sculpted it, Bacheret. Acheret is a cutting tool, a sculpting tool, but it has a cognate word in the, in the Torah, in the book of Exodus, in fact, very important word. Chartumim. Who are Chartumim? They are, maybe they're sculptors, but Chartumim in the Torah are Pharaoh's magicians. Pharaoh's magicians are called Chartumim. That's the only other place you have the word cheret. What? Tet was a tet. Yeah, same word. Cheret and chartim are clearly connected. And uh, what the connection is is a good meaning. Why are the chartumim related to the word cheret? But they are related. The fact of the matter is, 
that the Torah is making an important point about the golden calf, which is relevant to Moshe. The golden calf, as the Chumash represents it, is a spiritual descent back into Egypt. Or one might even say is a demonstration that the people never left, never spiritually left. Spiritually speaking, they're still in Egypt. It's made with the gold of Egypt. And it's a violation of the first thing that God said in the Ten Commandments. Namely, Anochi Hashem Elokecha, Asher Mitzrayim. In fact, when God speaks to Moshe on the mountain, if you remember, the first thing God says to Moshe is, the people you took out of Egypt. Right? Right? God says to Moshe, Kishichet Amcha, go down the mountain, Moshe. Kishichet Amcha, Asher Meyaretz Mitzrayim. The people you took out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. That's what God says to Moshe. God says to Moshe, these are not the people I took out of Egypt. The people I took out of Egypt would be out of Egypt. The people you took out of Egypt are still in Egypt. God's divesting himself of responsibility. Whereas Moshe's answer is, no, 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 no. I didn't take him out of Egypt. Why could I take him out of Egypt? They left with miracles and wonders and all that. I can't do those things. Obviously, you took him out of Egypt. If you took him out of Egypt, you can't wash your hands of them. You're responsible for them. But the point is, that's a very important point, that the story of the golden calf, one might say, is Exodus part two, which is, leave, Exodus about leaving Egypt. But leaving Egypt doesn't mean just physically walking out of Egypt. That's the first part of the book. second part is, leaving Egypt in a spiritual sense. What Aaron is, essentially, how he's represented is, Pharaoh and the Khartoumim, taking the gold of Mitzrayim, making a golden calf. Yes, we can explain what he does, we can explain it away, you know the way they are, I gotta deal with them on their level, you can't expect too much, all that may be, that's Aaron's way of doing it, but the net effect is, in the words of the Chumash, keep pro Aaron, which himself coming up. Aaron has made them pro Aaron, made them wild. And there's something else about the word pro, by the way, which is very important, that Rashi picked up. The Medrash, which picks up most things, makes a very simple point about the word parua. The word parua, this is actually a very important point about the story. It's about how these texts work. The word parua appears in two other places in the Bible. Actually, more than two. But it appears, yes, one of the critical places it appears is in the parasha, in the beginning of the book of Bamidbar, we call it the parasha of the uh, Sota. The Sota is the woman accused by her husband of, of unfaithfulness. She's brought to the priest, and the priest is giving her this trial. He takes uh, curses and he writes them down in a piece of parchment, and he puts it into bitter waters, and the the writing becomes erased into the into the into the water, and the woman drinks it. If she's guilty, she shrivels up and dies. And if she's not guilty, then she says lives on fruitful, whatever it is. The point is that what he does, this woman who comes into Sultan is interesting for a hundred different reasons. Actually, it's a very interesting topic. But the Chumash says. And when the woman comes in, upara and rosha isha, he should make her hair wild. Hmm. It means uncover. I'm not sure, but make the, the Chumash uses the word upara and rosha isha. Rashi took note of the fact, a medrash, in the story of the Egel, We have the word the people have become parua, okay, but more significantly, 
in the book of Exodus, at least, the version we have before us, when Moshe comes down the mountain, he sees people dancing around the golden calf, the Chumash says, on the bottom of page 184, that Moses took the eagle, he took the eagle they had made, and he burnt it in fire, and he crushed it up into powder, he threw it into the, uh, into the water, and he made them drink it. Making them drink it is exactly, right? He makes them, in a sense, drink he makes them drink. He makes them drink the sin. In the in the chumash with the sota, he makes them drink the the curses that are uh, attendant upon the sin. So the idea, but the idea of the two stories is similar, and that is what Moshe does. The idea of the sota, which the chumash plays with over here, is the idea. Even we haven't come to the sota yet. Sota is later. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing of the sota. The idea of the sota here, the idea of making them drink it, is making them take responsibility for what they did. That's actually a very important point. I may have mentioned this last time. In the version in Sefer Dvarim, there's another version. In the version in Dvarim, chapter 9 and 10, it's a different version. There, Moses says, I took the, this, 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 the thing you had made, right? And I crushed it up. Right? And I threw it, he says, into the brook that descends from the mountain. I threw the dust, I threw it into, <coughs> into dust, and I threw it into the water that descends from the mountain. It's actually a different version in Dvarim, and it's not just a different version in the details of it, it's a completely different idea. Because in the book of Dvarim, what he's saying is, I took your sin and I, and I threw it away. I took the sin and I threw it away. But Moses, I threw away your sin, he says. Moses says, I came down, I saw what you had done, I took the golden calf, and I threw it away. That's one way to get rid of sins, to throw them away. But the other way to get rid of the other things here in Shemot is different. Here he doesn't throw it away, he makes them drink it. Now the difference between those two is very great. And I'll tell you the, the main difference and the difference between the version in Tvarim of the golden calf and the version in the book of Exodus is the following. And this is actually a very important point about the Chumash. The story of the golden calf in our book, in Shemot, is a story within a story. This is a very important point. The, there's an outer story and there's an inner story. The outer story is basically... The stuff that appears just before the golden calf, six chapters of instructions how to build the Mishkan. The stories that appear after the golden calf are six chapters about building the Mishkan. The golden calf story is right in between the Mishkan. In fact, if there's no golden calf in the Chumash, it would be this way. Moses was given the instructions to build the Mishkan, chapters 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. And then, without a golden calf, he came down the mountain, he told them what God had said to them, and they built the Mishkan, chapter 35. Those intervening chapters, which are 32, 33, 34, they're, a, they're within the bigger picture. Now, the reason that's significant, in the book of Tavarim, the Mishkan doesn't appear, actually. There's no Mishkan in the Tavarim, it doesn't mention it. It's a different story. The, 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 here, the, why do I say this is important? Because... The Mishkan, and this is actually a very important point, the, the goal of the Mishkan, which is the end of the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus ends with the Mishkan. 
the, the Mishkan is, in the words of the Chumash, make for me a holy place, I will dwell in their midst. The key word is betocham, in their midst. Betocham is, is plural. Not, it say betocham. I will dwell in it, in the Mishkan. It doesn't say that. It says betocham, I will dwell amongst the people. The goal of the book of Exodus is clear, which is to create this people that will be servants of God and that will be in direct proximity or closeness to live together with God, basically. That's the goal of the Mishkan. It's not about an individual person. It is true, and we'll get to this hopefully a little in a few minutes, that before you get to the building the Mishkan, which is the house for all the people, Moshe builds his own little Mishkan. It's his own house. That's true. That's a step towards the ultimate Mishkan. But at the end of the day, the goal of the book is not that a particular person be in God's presence. The goal of the book is the people. Moshe is a broker. Moshe is an agent. He's a facilitator. He's not more than that. He's, he's not, the goal is not Moshe. Moshe's role is to take the people out of Egypt in two senses, physically and spiritually. That's his goal. But at the end of the day, the covenant is not between God and Moshe. The covenant is God and the people. So therefore, in order for that to happen, you have to, uh, people have to take responsibility. If you're going to have a real covenant after the golden calf, everybody's got to take responsibility. And Moshe begins by forcing them to take responsibility, forcing them to drink. That's actually very important. That's not what the book of Devarim is about. That's not Mo- book of Devarim are Moses' lectures. That's how the book begins. He lectures them, and one of the key points is this. He says, over the last 40 years, you fellows have made many mistakes. You've tested God so many times. And on many occasions, I, says Moshe, bailed you out. I saved you. You were incapable of saving yourselves. I'm the one that saved you. And of course, he ends up with the point, I'm not going to be around forever. And when I'm not around... I'm predicting very bad things are going to happen. That's one of the basic themes of Sefer Dvarim. So he's not interested in telling them, I, you, I made you take responsibility. That's not his mission in those chapters. The mission is to, to threaten them and say, if not for me, you wouldn't be here. That's actually a very important point. In any event, getting back to Moshe, by this Moshe and this Aaron, and the contrast between the two of them is, is very striking. They represent two kinds of, two approaches to leadership. I'm not saying that Aaron's approach is always necessarily the wrong one, but Moshe doesn't see things the way Aaron does. Aaron explains what he does. Yeah? You're very kind to Aaron because he's a liar and, they, and, the, people, and the people understand that he's weak and that's why they intimidate him. And maybe. They know they, well, this is just my. Weak opinion. is, well, he, he may be weak or he may be. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't intimidate someone if they're not, if they're really strong. You don't. But they see that he's weak. That's true. So they intimidate. Right, they probably would be afraid then, to intimidate, but they could intimidate Moshe, that's for sure. Right. Right. And then he doesn't tell him the truth. He doesn't say, all right, I enabled them. I actually. Fashion the golden calf. That's true, he doesn't. that there was going to be rioting and great harm, and this is what I did. Right. He said, oh, I threw it in the fire and it came out whole. Right, I understand. Right. Yeah. We all understand so that. You're very kind. 
Well, it's not just me being kind. The question is, what emerges from this text? And I think it's, yeah. it's not okay. that straightforward. I don't disagree that at its core there's a critique of Aaron. The next verse says it. Moses saw the people were wild, for Aaron had made them wild as a, as a disgrace unto those who would rise up against them. Chumash couldn't be more clear about it, but it puts the, that idea through the eyes of Moshe. It, it raises, in other words, here's I guess the question. It's a question about how these texts work in general. It's a very important question. I'm thinking a lot about this lately. I don't have definitive conclusions, but the way this text works, let's say the Chumash, okay, is you have essentially characters, okay? You have characters. And somebody, what I call it the author, they call it technically the uh, implied author. That is to say, somebody in this text who's talking to us, right? Is like a person or a voice or something in the text that speaks to us, right? That gives us information. And the, this, in, this implied author, that, of course, in other words, I could write a book, right? In my book, um, David writing the book, but there's, there's, there's a narrator inside the story, right? So that's not actually me, but that's someone that I created. That's a, in, what's called the implied author. But in any event, there's someone talking in this, and the one who's talking is is the author of the Torah, is someone who is who is all-knowing. The author of the Torah will tell us what people are feeling, what people are seeing, right? Now the question is, does this author have a have a have a point of view. Presumably the author has a point of view. The question is, how does the author get the point of view of the author across? How does the author do that? The author talking to us directly. The author also also talks to us through 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 the character. So for example over here, Moshe, Moshe says to Aaron, what did they do to you, you know? Aaron says says what well, this is what happened. He seems to contradict what it says earlier, right? Earlier, the Chumash tells you what happened, right? The people were, right? People saw that Moshe was late, was tarrying or whatever. Chumash says that. That is what they call the implied author, right? What's called the Torah says it, okay? The Torah says it. And now we have Aaron saying something which seems to contradict what the Torah said earlier. So we, we have reason to believe that the truth, as it were, is in terms of what it says earlier, because that's objectively stated. The Torah says the people saw that Moshe was delaying. The people gathered about around Aaron. The people said to Aaron, and Aaron said this, okay? What you have over here is Aaron's, what might say, his uh, interpretation of the facts. So from one perspective, they're different from what the Chumash said. From another perspective, can you say he's lying? I mean, you could use that word, or you could say he's actually uh, interpreting, he's explaining He's trying to justify what he did by saying something which you could say is a straight-out lie. I prefer to say it's, it's not a straight-out lie. It is not constant what it says earlier, but it's his understanding. It's, he's adding a level of understanding to what it said earlier. What he's saying is, yes, it's true. I, I mean, we, we, we end up with the following. Yes, he did make the golden calf. That's true. On the other hand, what was his calculation in doing it? Right? He doesn't initiate it, right? It's not, it's not that he says, hey guys, Moses is gone, let's make a golden calf. 
he is being intimidated in some sense. But his, his explanation of it is, I did this because I thought that given the circumstances of who these people are, okay, who they are, where they are, I had to give in to them. And he says that, and maybe he's implying that I didn't, I said, who has gold? In other words, they took off and gave it to me. He, I said, what he's saying is, I didn't actually instruct them to do it. Now, in the earlier story, he does instruct them. He says, right? In the, the way it says it in the earlier story, it says that he said, Parku, he says, take off the gold that are in the ears of your wives, sons, and daughters. Now, I explain that as meaning, but I, yes, I am trying to, not to apologize for what he did, because I don't think you can apologize. First of all, I'm not, I don't do those things. I don't, that's not my way. But, no, no, but, but I mean, I'm just being provocative. No, no, no. You're yeah, asking a very good question. Yeah. You're asking the right question, which is, how do you reconcile what Aaron says over here with what the Chumis says earlier? My answer to you is this. You can't reconcile it. The, the facts, the, what he's presenting over here is not what the Chumis said earlier, but my point is when you read both, both stories, you can read it in a way which I think is true, and that is, he doesn't want to do this. He doesn't initiate it. And what he's saying is, and what the Chumis says earlier, are several different things. In other words, when he says, take off the gold that's in the ears of your, of your wives and your sons and daughters, the point that I made was, it's what the Medrash says I think is accurate, which is, he's hoping they're not going to do it. Because the gold that's in the ears of the, of the wives and the sons and the daughters in the Chumash carried with it a deep significance. It's not like any piece of gold. It's very special. That's the gold they got upon, uh, upon becoming free. It's a marker in, in a great moment in, in, the, in the history of the people. It marks their freedom. The gold that they took from Egypt is a marker of freedom. So what he might be saying is, listen, he says, I, I didn't think, the bottom line is, I had no idea. What you're seeing was never my intention, which I think is accurate. Now, it's not his intention, so what was his intention? Maybe his intention was to delay them. Maybe the intention was to tell them to do something. Maybe they would say, we, we don't want to do it. Uh, Maybe he didn't fathom the amount of dedication to this golden calf. They get up. He says, "Let's make a party tomorrow." Is what he says. Chag Machar, which the Medrash sees as, as trying to delay it. Maybe he's hoping in the interim Moses will come back. Everything will be okay. But what happened? They got up early in the morning. They're up at five o'clock in the morning. What? A party tomorrow? Maybe they'll show up at midnight, twelve o'clock. No, they're up early, early in the morning, dancing, skipping, and whatever. The point that he says. My point is. It's, un- it's, it's not exactly what it says earlier. It contradicts what it says earlier. But the Chumash allows Aaron to try to explain. Because the fact of the matter is, the truth is, the truth is, that even when people do bad things, but usually there's a, there's a reason for it. It's not straightforward. I'm not saying it's not wrong. What was the thought process? Well, Moses is saying to him, Moses is, is, is condemning it, but he says, what were you thinking? So Aaron says, what I was thinking was, they weren't going to go through with it. What I was thinking was, we're going to, it's not going to happen right away. And what I was thinking was, and whatever I was thinking initially is not the way it came out. Which is what it means, I threw it in, this thing came out. Which is untrue on one level. 
didn't come out, you fashioned it. But it is true on a different level, which is, I didn't imagine ever that such a thing was going to happen. And in fact, I'll tell you, there's a truth to that as well, because in the initial request for the, for the, for the ego, they make it very clear, for the man Moses has gone. They're seeing it as a replacement for Moshe. That's what it sounds like. And shortly thereafter, they're dancing around it and saying, these are the gods who took you out of Egypt. Which sounds a little bit more than just Moshe. Moshe took them out of Egypt. But he was the human being in God's direction who took them out of Egypt. These are the gods who took you out of Egypt is a way of saying something different. It's attaching to this golden calf some kind of divine significance. So I think that if we want to read it in a spirit of generosity, which is not a bad thing, we can hear without violating the text, we can say he's lying, maybe he's afraid. People that are afraid often don't tell the truth. But there's not, a, there's not just straight up lie. In what he's saying, there's a fair amount of truth. Now the point here is not to justify, of course. The point here is that, my point is to contrast what Aaron is saying on one hand with what Moses says on the other hand. And the core difference between them, I had this several years ago, I was on a panel. I don't know how this came up, about leadership. And... Um, Someone on the panel had expressed this idea which have, you know, which has become popular with, with several people, and that is the leader has to basically can only move the people so far. In other words, you, you're a leader. On a scale of one to ten, the career of rabbi, the congregation is at four. You want to move them from four to five, maybe from five to six, one little step at a time, one little thing. You bring in one little innovation a second. If you're going to try to move from, from four to nine, Nothing's going to happen, and it will be a, it won't work. That'll be poor leadership. So the right leader, seeing where they are, moving them forward a little bit. That was the point. That was everybody said yes, yes, yes. So I said no, no, no. I, right? so I said that's one kind of leadership. There's another kind of leadership, which is, and actually a very important point. Someone has to set the bar in a certain place because you have to be aspire. Maybe it doesn't work today for this group. Maybe it works in 30 years from now. You know what I mean? You set the bar to a certain place where we actually should be. doesn't mean we're going to get there. Maybe no one gets there for the next 10 years. But you're planting in people's heads the idea that there's something different. And that's basically what Moshe Moshe sees himself. When Aaron says, you know the way the people are, right? I tell you, obviously Moshe could care less about that. I said, I don't care where the people are. All I care about is where the people should be. And maybe you need both, kind of, both kinds of leadership. I don't think it's clear that one is totally wrong and one is right. But what's clear in the story is that Moshe rejects what Aaron is saying. We could explain Aaron, apologize for Aaron, somewhat justified. But on the other hand, and he was chosen to begin with, that Moshe said from day one, I don't talk their language. That's what Moshe says to God. Not just language. I'm not, we're not on the same wavelength. We have a different set of values. They're not going to understand what I'm saying. That's okay. They won't understand it right away, but they'll understand it at some point, maybe. Or maybe the children will understand it, who knows. So that's the, that's the fight over here. Moshe is rejecting Aaron's approach. I don't accept that, says Moshe. And Moshe sets out in a different way. Moshe essentially calls out, and this is Vaya Moses in Pasuk Kafav in 26 on page 185. Moshe said, Moshe stood in the, by the gate 
and said, Who is for God? Come to me. This is actually a very important point. There's something else about Moses and Aaron, which is very different in their personalities, mode of leadership, etc. And this we emphasized last time very strongly. When Moshe comes down the mountain, it's actually a very important point. What the Chumash emphasizes is he's totally alone. There's nobody else. Not Aaron, not Chur, who's gone, and not even Joshua, his beloved, faithful disciple. Because what Joshua hears and Moses he's hearing are not the same thing. So Moshe finds himself completely and totally alone. I mean, he's not actually fully alone, as we'll see right now, but he doesn't know that necessarily. His brother makes the golden calf. You know the way the people are. So Moshe stands up and says, Whoever is for God, come to me. For All the sons of Levi came to Moses. Moses himself is a Levi. That's the first time we meet Moses, in chapter 2. But Levi is not just the designation of a tribe. Levi is two other things. First of all, Levi is, is a word. The word Levi, or Lilavot, means to, uh, to uh, accompany. To accompany. A uh, Malava Malka, right? Meal on, after Shabbat. Festive meal after Shabbat was a Malava Malka. To accompany the queen. The queen is leaving. Shabbos is leaving, so you accompany the queen. Lilavot, Levayat to accompany the dead. It's a mitzvah. So Levi is one who accompanies. So Moses doesn't know it, but there are those who accompany, those that join up with Moses. We have to remember, though, that the Levi, the first time we ever meet the Levi in a story, in a narrative, is the story of Shimon and Levi. Shimon and Levi are those who kill the people of Shechem. And Jacob condemns them. But the Levi is the accompanist. Here, too, Moses is going to go to war. But he's only one person. Whoever is for God, come to me. There's about to be a, uh, a uh, civil war. So Moses' position here and Aaron's position are the opposite. Aaron is seen in the Medrash, by the way, and in the Agatic literature, as the person who seeks out peace. Oev Shalom, Verodev Shalom. He's always seeking out peace. He's running after peace. There are all kinds of stories in the, in the Agada about Aaron, how he would reconcile people. Moses is a different way. That's not Moses' past. Moses is about to instigate war. We're about to have a civil war. That's what's going to happen. And Moses doesn't know who's on his side. He's only one person. Whoever is for God, join with me. It's interesting because the one who was supposed to join with Moses in the initial story in the book of Exodus is actually Aaron. Right? That's what Moses, I can't go. Get somebody else. You know, your brother. Actually, is he called the Levi over there? I think he's called the Levi. Is that my imagination? Or is it actually, let's see. Oh, that's such a good imagination. It's got to be there, because I couldn't imagine such a thing. Is he called Aaron, your brother, the Levi? One second, what is it? What is it? It's got to be there. One second, hold on one second. Let's see, where is this? Yeah, it's correct. Page 119. 119. And Moses said to God, God, send whomever you will send. Get somebody else not interested in the mission. God got angry at Moses. And God said, Your brother Aaron the Levi. Right? He's a very good talker. Why is he called the Levi over there? 
because his role is to be a levy to accompany. If you're a brother Aaron, the accompany, he is a levy, but he's also the levy means something. He means to accompany. So Aaron was the one who was chosen to accompany. But what do you see in the story? He can't accompany Moses. In this, in this narrative, he can't accompany because they're not on the same page. What is trying to justify what happened? You know the way they are. Okay, it's, you know you got to understand. And Moses, I don't understand, but whoever come, come to me, right? But all the, all, the, all the Levites came to him. So Aaron was chosen because he's a lady, but now he, in this story he's not a lady. So the Levitim come. And Moses said to them, This is what the God of Israel says. Put your sword on your thigh. Kill your brother, kill your friend, kill your relative. Civil war. There's a war here against the, I presume, the perpetrators of the golden calf. This is a very extreme, extreme actually. So it's exactly the opposite. Moshe is, and let's not forget, the first time we ever meet Moshe, the first thing he ever does, he kills, he kills an Egyptian. First thing Moses does is to kill somebody. Let's not forget that. So it's, it's always the Rodev Shalom. He's not. It's not his thing. And then it says, The Levites did what Moses had said to do. Three thousand people died on that day. It's a big number. So we have a civil war. By Yom Moshe, now we have a difficult verse. Meu yedchem hayom Hashem ki ish bivno uvachiv. Furatet arechem hayom bracha. Moses said to them, Meu yedchem. Here the translation is, dedicate yourselves to God on this day. For each of you has been against son and brother, that God may bestow a blessing upon you today. It's actually a very striking uh, expression here in this. Pasuk, the expression is Milu Yetchem Hayom Rashem. Rimare et Yadam is an idiomatic expression in the Chumash, which here they translate as dedicate your hands to God, and I think is a good a good a good the translation of Rimare et Yadam. The, the term Rimare et Yadam appears essentially in one place in the Torah. It appears in conjunction with consecrating priests for service inside inside the Mishkan. This, in fact, the days of consecration. In fact, what's this week's parsha? By Yom Hashmini. This week's parsha is Shmini, right? We're reading the Shabbat Shmini. What does Shmini mean? On the eighth day. I mean, on the eighth day. So, what happened the first seven days? On the eighth day, God said to spoke to Moses to Aaron, right? What happened on the first seven days? The first seven days at the end of last week's parsha, which we read before Pesach. The first seven days are called what? Shirat Yimei Hamiluim. The days of the Miluim. What are the days of the Miluim? Miluim, very important. The Miluim are the seven days of consecration. Those are the seven days where the priests are prepared and the temple is prepared prior to the ultimate day of dedication, which is the eighth day. That's this week's parsha, Yom Ashvini. The first seven days are called the days of the Miluim. And the term that's used with the Miluim is 
And this actually is a very important. Moshe says to them, dedicate yourselves to God. In this verse already, there's a hint about something that's very important. And I want to explain what it is. Yes? The Migalim today are, right. The Migalim are the, right there, it probably is related to something else. Maybe it's connected. It's probably related to the word to, 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 to make up the difference, to fill up, because the Migalim are the people that are, Migalim are the reservists in the army, because they're the people that make up the, 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 the there's a missing number in the army. You always need more, your army doesn't have enough soldiers. So making up that difference, filling in the gap, it's called the Miluim, the ones who fill up the gap. I presume that's why they're called Miluim. But in the Chumash, uh, the term Limalei, right, to be Malay, for whatever reason, essentially is a word that appears, we'd have to look in the concordance and see, but I presume it's almost always found in conjunction with building the, uh, the, uh, the Mishkan. And here, I want to make a point about what Moshe says. There's something interesting about what he says. The choice of words is not an accident. And here's something interesting about the Levi. The people who joined Moses and killed the ones who made the golden calf, probably not all of them, but they killed the main, the main instigators of the golden calf. So they are... They, so what happens when you, when you, when you kill your brother? It says, kill your brother and your relative and your friends. What happens when you do such a thing? What typically happens in the Chumash when someone kills somebody else in a circumstance where it's not seen as premeditated murder? It's premeditated murder, this is the capital punishment. But it's situations where it's not premeditated murder. It's short of that in the Chumash, what happens is the one who does it, if it's murder with an explanation or it's accidental murder, Right? or just justified in some sense, or accidental, then in the Chumash, sometimes, you run off to the city of refuge, the Imbiklat. Why do you run off to the city of refuge? Because if you kill somebody, you can't live with the other people. You have to live separately. The city of refuge affords protection. It's protection, but it's also, one might say, punishment, or maybe it's expiation. It's a kind of kapara. It's a kind of atonement. And that's called the Ir Mikrat. That's a very central institution in Israel. It appears in more than one place in the Chumash, several places in the Chumash, and at great length also. So let's talk about the Leviim. The Leviim killed their, killed, they killed all these people. So the question becomes for the Chumash, what's to be with the Leviim? Okay, they didn't do the wrong thing. Maybe they did the right thing. But where are they going to live? They'll live your next, your next door neighbor? I mean, my neighbors, they killed my, uh, my uh, three sons. I, what? I mean, that's just not going to work. So the Levium actually are going to be separate. The Levium are not going to live amongst the people anymore. Like all people that killed, even they not murderers, but they did kill all these people. So what's going to be with the Levium? So in, when you went to the land, actually, they have their own cities. The Levium don't get inherit their own inheritance. It's a very important point. The cities of the Levium, you understand, that's why the Levium are counted separately. Because the count, the census, the second census is a function of who gets land. But the land was not given to the Levium. So how did the Levium have cities? They have 40, 48 cities. How do they have cities? The cities are donated to them by the tribes. 
They don't have their own cities. They have their own separate cities. It comes from a donation from the tribes. But the important point is, in, let's say, in, in, they don't have land. And in the first census, the Chumash gives a reason. They don't have land, says the Torah, because they are mine, says God. The Chumash never explains why the Leviim are mine. But the simple explanation is because of the story over here. So what the Leviim have done, the Leviim work inside the temple, basically. That's why the Chumash uses the term Moshe said to the Leviim, Milu Yedchem Hayom Hashem. The term Lemalei Adam is a, is a Mishkan term. Dedicate yourselves to God means that from here on in, you have a different service. You're different than all the other tribes. Your job will be in the future to work for God directly. And I would add, this is a very important point, that the way the Chumash plays it out, the Levim working for God in the Mishkan is also working for all the other people. Because one of the main functions of the Levim is to actually to guard the temple. To make sure that nobody who doesn't belong there ends up inside the temple. Because if you don't belong in the temple, when you walk into the temple, nothing good is going to happen. And we have in this week's parasha, Adav and Aviyu. If you, if, you, if you trespass the boundaries of the temple, that's very dangerous. So the Leviim have the additional service. They serve the community by helping the Kohanim in the temple. And they serve the community by preventing people, by safeguarding the space. And they live in the, in the deserts. If you know how the camp is constructed, they don't live with the other tribes. There are 12 tribes. There were 12 tribes. There were 13, but they're 12. And they live in the temple, in the desert, in groups of three. North, south, east, and west. That's where they live like this. Where did the Levium live? Four. Four groups of three. Four groups of three. North, south, east, each one has three tribes. Three times four is 12. The 12 tribes. Then, that's the living over here. In the middle is the Mishkan. Right around the Mishkan, you have the Levium. How many, how many groups of Levium are there? There's three. There are three sons of three groups of Levium. So there's three sons, three Levium on three sides. The fourth thing is Aaron on the fourth side. So there are four Levium all together. They're kind of an inner, it's an inner square. There's the temple, the Mishkan in the middle, and right about the Mishkan, the Levium, and then further out, the outer square are four groups of three tribes. So the Levium, here's the point I want to make, the Levium are in perpetual exile. That's why the cities are also cities of, cities of refuge. Because the cities are city, it's living in exile. They live in perpetual exile. But the, the exile of the Levium is in service. As I'm talking, I'm thinking about something else which is interesting. In last summer, listen, listen to this very carefully, this is actually important. If you tell everybody about this. Last summer we did a little program. I don't know if anybody participated, I remember. I don't think so. There were, it was excellent. We had a four day learning program in June, nine to five. I, I taught every morning for three hours, and we had other teachers in the afternoon. We had one topic. We had about 15 people took off for a week. Some people came in, one guy flew off from, from Houston, and it was very serious learning, and we had a topic. So we plan to do it again this year, probably the third week in June, Monday through Thursday. It was terrific. I'm thinking about the topic of exile. Exile is very interesting to me. Working on McGill and Esther, the books about exile. 
but in particular what I don't know much about but I have an intuition about it is the following exile is I think seen typically as a uh, as a negative it's a punishment in the Chumash I don't remember what the topic was I always stories we tell it was about it wasn't that it was about stories stories different elements of stories in the Bible doesn't matter that was the last what? It was very good. It was, I thought it was better than good. I thought it was outstanding. Really. It was great. Yeah. It's going to be great this year too. But here's about exile. Exile is presented in the Chumash as, as obviously as, as a punishment. It's the first punishment. Banishment from the Garden of Eden is exile. And the story of exile in the Chumash is Jacob in the house of Lavan. It's uh, Israel and Egypt, basically. So exile is represented as a, as, as, as a punishment. It's one of the great punishments. The question is, can, is exile understood ever as something positive? So I think you, I, here's what I suspect. I suspect within the world of the uh, Hasidut, in the Hasidic masters, you will find within exile all kinds of positive things. I was thinking about this as I'm talking, suddenly struck me that the Leviim are in a kind of permanent exile, actually. That's what they are. The Levium don't dwell. What does exile mean? You, you are banished from the, from the uh, community. The Levium are banished from the community. They can't dwell with their, with, their, with, their, with their fellow Jews. They're perpetually in exile. But the way the Chumash spins it is that that has an enormous value. In fact, not only does it have a value in terms of their own service, but actually has an additional value, which is incredible, which is why does the Chumash spend so much time on the cities of refuge? It spends a lot of, of, of ink and parchment on the cities of refuge. In fact, not only that, at, towards the end of the book of Bamidbar, in the next to last chapter of Bamidbar, a very long chapter, it's almost entirely about cities of refuge. One might say that the narrative of the Torah, which ends in, the real narrative ends at the end of Bamidbar, that right the next to last narrative piece in the Torah is a lengthy excursus about cities of refuge and even in the story of Cain and Abel Cain is protected by given a sign when Cain is banished from God's presence and the point of the cities of refuge this is an interesting digression but it's interesting and that is the cities of refuge oh, the, the exile is what allows the Jews to actually stay inside the land let's say you have no cities of refuge why is the Chumash so preoccupied with cities of refuge because the cities of refuge are what allows societies to actually survive. Because what the cities of refuge do is they prevent bloodshed. Because if you don't have cities of refuge, what's going to happen? My relative killed your relative. So what's going to happen? Your relative will then kill my relative. That's what the Chumash assumes. You can't prevent it. And then my relative will kill your relative, will kill my relative, and it will go on forever. Right? So the city of refuge is the way for the community to say we put a stop to the bloodshed by creating a safe space where there's no killing and then the families and the tribes can live in peace. So the cities of refuge are a mechanism without which the Chumash seems to say you can't actually have society because when there's no mechanism to prevent the bloodshed when there's no central institution to prevent the bloodshed there's nobody in power to prevent the bloodshed then what happens is people will just kill each other. And you leave it up to the tribes or the families, which of course, we see it happens all the time. That's what we watch on the news every day. Every day. 
And even it's funny, even when you even when the guy in charge is a bad guy, but sometimes that that limits the bloodshed because at least there's one person in control. When you leave, yeah, when you leave it up to the individuals. So the point is, it's very interesting that the the, the, the exile of the Levium actually serves a very deep communal purpose. I was thinking about this. So anyway, let's get back to Moshe, our hero here. So Moshe sets creates a war. It's actually a civil war, but the civil war, those that join Moshe's side, he sees as taking God's part over here, which is why he uses the term So that's the first thing Moshe does. Let's see, what has Moshe done so far? First he breaks the tablets. Then he starts a civil war. Okay? So far he's rather aggressive. In, the, in between, he, he calls out his brother. What, have, what did they do to you that you could do such a thing? Right? And now... He returns to God. And this is actually very important, not just about Moshe, but it's about the prophets in general. Moses said to the people on the next day, You have had a grievous sin. Now I will go back up to God, he says, perhaps. I may win forgiveness, achapra, kapara, appeasement or forgiveness for your sin. The point being that Moshe does not say to them, well, we killed 3,000, the 3,000 villains have been killed, we're all good. He doesn't say that. He presumes, as the Chumash does often, a kind of corporate responsibility. You all sinned. Everybody was here with either, either actively sinned or passively sinned, because we're part of this community. So we still require atonement. Now let me go back. Now that we eliminated the first group, the real core of evil, now let's go back and see what I can do to achieve God's kapara. Now we have Moshe's plea to God. This is actually very interesting. This is, I would say, if you, if you, you know, you're reading a book. I don't care what the book is. There are significant stories and more significant stories. I would say when you get out of the book of Genesis and you get to the rest of the Chumash, if you had to pick out one story that's the most significant story of the Chumash, this is it. This is the key story of the Torah. The story of the golden calf. Because it, it reshapes and it, re, uh, it, recon, it, it reconfigures people's relationship with God forever. But Yosher Moshe Hashem, Moses returned to God and said, Ana, chata amazeh chata Ana, here they translated Ana as alas. I wonder what the translations are. Alas, maybe truly, honor. Honor is a hard word to no is please. Honor, I don't know. It's easy. Here they translate alas. We should try to think about what honor means. The word honor, right? Honor. Where are we? We're on page 185 in chapter 32, in verse number 31. Moses said to God, honor. Alas, or in truth, right? In truth. It's a confession. The people have sinned with a great sin. They made for themselves a god of gold. It's interesting. Here you have an example of what the Talmud speaks of when one confesses a sin. What the Talmud calls pirutachet, to actually say exactly what's wrong. In terms of confession, vidui, which is a big deal in our liturgy, a big deal in the Chumash interesting concept of confession 
the Gemara talks about when one confesses a sin, one should be very specific. Here you have Moses saying that they sinned grievously inasmuch as they made for themselves a golden god. Viatah, and now, imtisachatatam. If you forgive them, good, says Moses. If you, no seichet, no seavon, no seichet means to forgive their sin. It's interesting why does it mean that? But that's what it means. Tisachatatam. Viyimayim. But if not, if you, if you don't forgive them, says Moses then erase me from the book that you have written very striking what does that mean erase me from the book that you have written first of all somebody want to point out that the expression to erase me from the book okay carries when you read that hear that phrase erase me from the book that you have written it carries with it I think two significances two associations immediately First, it carries with it the association of the story of Amalek in chapter 17. We've already seen other language, other Amalek language in the story of the golden calf. Aaron and Hur supported his hands. Aaron and we saw that language. Yoshua goes to fight Amalek. Yoshua thrown away from Moses on the bottom of the mountain. The, the Amalek story, the lead into the Amalek story in chapter 17. The leading verses, the people said, Hayesh Hashem Bekirbenu Im Ayin. Is God in our presence? Im Ayin or not? Fayavo Amalek. Im Ayin is a, a rare expression in the Bible. And here it's Ayin. Be Im Ayin. If not, says, Mo, says Moses, cross me out of the book you have written, erase me from the book. In the case of Amalek, God said to Moses, write it down in a book. Write this down in a book. Sabasefer. Write what in the book? I will erase Amalek from under the heavens. So you have the idea of writing and you have the idea of erasing. Amalek is erased from the book. That's, that's what it sounds like. There's a book. Book is God. Book is history. It's God's... Describes God's creations. God's world. To be erased from the book means not to be part of God's plan. To be erased from that. Interesting is this idea of writing or the idea of a book and erasing from a book appears earlier in the Chumash. And I'll tell you where it appears. In the Chumash, it's very interesting, you have many genealogies in the Chumash. They're called Toldot. Many Toldot. Ewa Toldot Noach, Ewa Toldot Yitzchak, Ewa Toldot Yaakov, they all have Toldot. In one place, however, the Chumash used a different term didn't say Toldot. said something different. Which is chapter 5 of Genesis. Very striking verse. Extremely striking. How does chapter 5 of Genesis begin? I don't expect you to know it by heart. It's one of those chapters that has a lot of names, you know? So, page 9. Very striking. The Chumash says, Ze Sefer Toldot Adam. This is the book, the Sefer, of the generations of the human being. Why did the Chumash actually, in this one and only one place, it could have said, Ewa Toldot Adam. That's what it always says. These are the generations. Ewa Toldot Yitzchak, Ewa Toldot, Ewa Toldot Yaakov, Ewa Toldot Noah. But over here, Sefer Toldot Adam. Why did the Chumash deviate from the other Toldot? 
The answer is this, I believe. Because the expression Sefer Toldot Adam in chapter 5 is actually a foreshadowing of a verse in chapter 6. At the end of Parashat Breshit, where God said to God, God said, Emche et Adam Asher Barati. I will, I will erase the human that I have created. What God is doing, except for one, except the Noach Matzachem B'Enei Hashem, Eilat Toldot Noach. It's exactly, it's exactly right. In other words, this is the book of God's creation. Then God says, in a chapter and a half later, I'm going to, I'm going to blot out, I'm going to erase the book, right? I'm going to erase the book. So the Toldot are erased, except for one person, except Noach Matzachem. Eilat Toldot Noach, the Chumash says, Noach is not. God did not erase all of humanity. God kept one small remnant, one relic of humanity, who still has Toldot, and that's Eilat Toldot Noach. So it's interesting that the idea to be erased from the book means to be not part of God's creation, to be eliminated. What Moses is saying over here is, Sister God, listen, if you forgive them, good. But if not, if you don't forgive them, cross me out of the book as well. And you can erase me, because, in other words, I see my death, my story motions, my narrative, my story. My destiny is bound up with his people. So if they don't, if they don't live, there's no point for me to live either. Because that's my mission. My mission is to, is, to, is to, I have no existence apart from them, because my mission is to, is to guide them. And therefore, you might as well erase me too. That's what, it, it's sort of, maybe Moshe knows that God doesn't want to erase him. So Moshe may be trying to blackmail God or to force God to, to forgive. But God does not so easily give in. God's response is, Vayom Rashem Moshe, Mi Sifri. I only erase those who sin against me. Those who do not sin against me, I do not erase. It's very interesting that we have here the idea of being erased from the book is actually a very interesting idea. It, that phrase appears in several other places. And I'll tell you one of the other places it appears. Food for thought. We also have the idea of a book being erased. Not surprisingly, actually. The priest writes down these curses in a book Safer and erases them into the bitter waters. The parish of Sota. Again, you have Sota. We had about three Sota references over here. So you have. This is very striking. I want to say something about about actually about Purim. It's related. The Purim story is deeply related to the story of the golden calf. I'm not going to go into that now. That will take us too far afield. But I do want to say one thing, not about the Megillah, but about the folk the folk holiday we call Purim. Not the Purim of the Shulchan Aruch, not the Purim of the Rambam, not the Purim of the Rabbis, not the Purim of the Halacha, but the folk Purim. The folk Purim is played out in a variety of ways with costumes, cross-dressing, with making noise during the Megillah, with uh, eating the Purim fest meal, festive meal at the very, very last second of the day, Etc. Etc. And these, there are a whole set of these different hitting people. You have 
the Tosavist. We, we have people walking in the street hitting each other. What's that about? The wearing of shatnas, as in something that the Shulchan Aruch mentions. The uh, taking things that don't belong to you, stealing, basically. The Tosavist asks these questions. People are hitting people, are stealing, on am what's going on. They have an explanation. Explanation. Getting drunk is another one. So you can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai. So what is that actually about? So it strikes me that what it's about at its core, not that people who are doing, observing these things know what they're doing. I don't believe that. For each of these, about, I, I count about 15 of these different things. For each of them, people have an explanation. And maybe the explanation is convincing for that one thing. But it doesn't explain the other 14. And the 15 of them are very similar. And they involve two different things generally. One is, they are essentially questioning the so-called order that we ascribe to the world. We see the world as an ordered place. We, we see the world as ordered. We, order means we make distinctions. There are men and there are women. So on Purim, you can't tell the difference. Cross-dressing, you can't. Right? And uh, we believe that there are good guys and bad guys. Right? But you drink and pour them to you can't tell the difference between Haman and Mordechai. And we believe that we have a, a, a path. We have, we have a Torah that tells us right and wrong. And we, we study our text and we can derive the truth from the text. Purim Torah. Purim Torah means a good Purim Torah. A second Purim. You read it, it looks like, it looks like a Talmud. You can't tell the difference. You reach ridiculous conclusions. Absurdity, actually. So part of these part of these customs of the people is to question whether the world in which we live is actually an ordered place or whether there is disorder. I tell you, last night my daughter was in a, something called Witness Theater, if anybody saw this. Witness Theater, very powerful. I mean, they, my kids spent like dozens of hours on this all year. It was crazy. But last night they had for Yom HaShoah, they had six survivors, some in their 90s. And they had six students, they put on this production. The survivors read their stories and the kids sort of act it out. It's very extremely powerful, it's extremely well done. And one of the things, the Holocaust raises all kinds of theological issues. And I'll tell you what, the biggest question it raises for me, when you hear these stories, I grew up with the, with the Shoah, not my parents, but I grew up in a community where everybody was survivors. And at the, in retrospect, there were very young people at the time, I didn't realize this. It's the early 50s, basically, you know, they'd say, the war had ended in 45. It was eight years after the war, nine years after the war. I mean, but um, you hear the stories of this one. This one was stories. She goes to a camp. I wonder if it's broken out one of them, and they put her on one line, the sister on the other line, and her best friend goes, goes switches back to the other line to be with the younger sister. It's the death, death line. I knew someone the opposite. The man I grew up with. He jumped lines the other way. The randomness of it. That's, that's, what's, that's, that's the theological problem for me. It's completely haphazard. Someone had, these stories are mind-boggling because it's not one story. It's, the last story is a woman's in six different places. She goes from this place, she's in Poland, into Siberia. And she goes to, uh, to, to, uh, the, uh, to, the, uh, to the Ukraine, gets separated from her, from her mother. The boat starts leaving, the captain turns the boat around. I mean, the stories are mind-boggling. Azerbaijan they end up, but you can't imagine. And you have hazardness of it, you know what I mean? That's Purim. Purim is saying, 
which is the story of the Megillah. There's one guy who doesn't like Mordechai. He didn't bow down to him. I'll kill all the Jews. It's crazy, you know what I mean? But it's so crazy. Could it happen? The answer is maybe it happened, you know? Even, even if it didn't happen. But it could happen, that's the point. So that's, that's one idea of, the, of these customs that under the guise of being a little bit drunk, that's what it is. But there's something else actually about, about these customs, I believe. It's not just about the randomness, which is a very important point. It's not just that the world seems to have no order. But there's actually something else about the customs. And not just customs in the abstract. They're actually customs which attempt to undercut the very festival of Purim. Making noise during the Megillah is not just making noise, but actually, as the halachas all point out, what's problematic about it is you can't actually hear the Megillah. Eating the meal of Purim, which is a widespread custom at the last second of the day, means you're eating the meal of Purim after Purim's over. Whatever it's... In other words, the customs are doing something else, actually, which is they're actually undercutting the law. And when you read the Megillah, of course, the Megillah is filled with laws from beginning to end. In fact, the very word Medina, which is, right, Medina or Medina, right? 127, what does the word Medina mean? In Arabic it means it's in Tzapshat. Medina is related to the word Din. It means a place of law. The Megillah is filled with, with laws. It kind of starts with laws. Laws about the party. There's a law about drinking at the party. There's a law about the cosmetics of the women. The laws about genocide. There are all kinds of laws when you could come into the king's inner chamber. All kinds of laws. But what's interesting is about the laws of the Megillah is very simple. There are millions of laws. And Achashverosh is a very democratic man. You can drink whatever you want. That Hashtiyah Kadat, the drinking was according to the law. What was the law? Do whatever you want. It's funny, you know. That's the law. And you don't have to do whatever you want. Do whatever you want except under one circumstance. But when, when it doesn't suit his purposes. Vashti comes to my party, yeah. right? She doesn't want to show up for good reason. She's out. Then he convenes the state cabinets, you know what I mean? For the genocide, he doesn't convene anybody. He goes, kill all these people, take my ring. But when Vashti convenes the Odeas, the Odehoi team, and the advisors, and the whole thing, the, the, the custom of the people on Purim is actually, I think, something else about it which is very subversive. Not just the randomness, which is extremely subversive, but there's something else. It calls into question the laws, actually. It raises a very simple question. People make laws, society make laws. For whose benefit? Who, who's, whose benefit? We understand with the Achashverosh, it's for his own benefit. All the laws for benefit Achashverosh. The laws of the beauty treatments, there's a law. Six months in this kind of thing, six months over there. Right? It's all laws, right? Kedat HaNashim. I mean, it's supposed to be funny, but it's also true, basically. Okay, I got that. I know when Achashverosh makes laws. What about not Achashverosh? What about when the uh, when our leaders make laws? Our Chachamim, our scholars, our, who, they, who, who are they making them for? Who, do, who, does, who does the city of New York make laws for? Now, here's a very simple point, right? Who actually makes the laws? Let's start with that. Right, the people with power make the laws. The schleppers don't make any laws, okay? Let's start with that. The fact of the matter is that, and this is a very important point, the question that's being raised under the guise of being drunk is a very good question about law. What are these laws actually about? Now, I would say the following about... Why do I mention all this here? Because I would say the following. I, 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 this is me. I assume when people make laws, 
it's, that it's for their own benefit. I, I assume that. That's my, it's a given for me. It's, I, I have no question about it. The politicians are making laws. If the politicians are making it for themselves, basically, a small constituency, maybe the people that give them money, that's what I assume. But there's an exception to the rule. Moshe Rabbeinu is an exception. Esther is an exception. Mordechai is an exception. I'll tell you why they're exceptions. Because they're willing to die for it. That's why. When Moses says, forgive them, and if you don't forgive them, you can erase me as well. He's not just saying that. He actually means it. And when Esther says, I will go to speak to the king, it's against the law, and generally speaking, you're killed, except Levad, except Levad, except for the exception. Maybe I'll be the exception, but you know something? Kasher avadati avadati, if I perish, I perish. She assumes she's going to perish. She doesn't assume she's going to survive that, because it's only Levad. And the same thing for Mordechai. It's also Levad. Mordechai Levado, he's called. He's not bowing down to Haman. He's an ambitious guy. He wants to move up all that. He's not bowing down. He has his principles. He's not doing it. Whatever it entails, he's not going to stop. So those kind of people, they're not making the laws for themselves. Because they don't care about themselves, actually. They only care about because they're willing to die for it. Those are the exceptions. But on Purim, when I ask you questions about Mordechai and Esther, the custom of Purim the undercutting of the laws, making a very simple point. We raised the question, and I think it's a pretty good one actually, about the laws that we are being given by our, our leaders. Who do they have in mind over here? What exactly is the purpose of the law? That's a very, without being overly cynical, I think it's a very important question. I, mean, I don't have too many questions about it personally, but the fact is, it's something to think about. So once a year, we allow ourselves to ask very deep questions about the way the world is running, maybe from a theological standpoint of the randomness. Okay, that's God. But we also have a question about ourselves, which is when we make rules and laws and regulations, what's actually behind it? What is the real purpose of it? You know, and to, you know, at least one day in the year, I think it's, it's a worthwhile. Moshe is not that way. And this is, that's why the verse is so important over here. There's a reason that the Megillah when Esther goes to see the king, and maybe we'll get to this, plays off the story of, 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 of the golden calf. There's a reason for it. It's not an accident. It sees in Esther's approach and a willingness to, to give up her life, which she's willing to do, uh, it sees that as another story of Moshe. And not just that, the very approach that she takes, the strategy she uses, is essentially based on Moses' strategy in the, in, the, in, the, in the story of the golden calf. But we'll get there next time. But this particular time, this verse is very striking. God's answer is, Moshe, that's not necessary. Those who sin against me, I'm not writing you out of my book. I also, maybe, I'm not accepting your threat. I'm going to run it my way, but I hear what you say. In the next verse, and we'll just stop with this next verse, Go, go back to the people and leave them. My, my angel will go before you. On the day of my accounting, I will, I will, take, I will take, bring them to account for their sins. So God plagued the people. They had made the golden calf which Aaron had made. Here the Chumash is very straightforward, which Aaron had made. So it blames it. The Chumash does not let Aaron off the hook. I never wanted to intimate that it does. It does not in any manner, shape, or form. Having said all that, it does present us with Aaron's side of the story, which has some truth to it, I would argue. In any event, 
Let me just say that God says to Moshe, I'm not letting them off the hook completely. On the day that I take them to account, they'll be held accountable. It's not clear when that day is in the text. Is it the next day? Is it sometime in the future? But I just would end with, on one hand, Moshe is successful. God says, I, yes, I will send them into the place that I had promised to give them. That's the end of Canaan. On the other hand, my angel will walk before them. We don't know what that means. My angel will walk before them. My angel, but not me. Or my angel represents me. That's the next paragraph. We have to deal, get back to the angel. But Moshe has been successful, at least in not just, as he says, perhaps I will atone for your sin. He succeeds in some measure, right, in allowing the people to move forward and that God was not totally rejecting them. They have to still be held accountable. Uviyom Pakti, on the day of their accounting, let me say one last word about that expression, Uviyom Pakti, Pakad. The word pokad is a very interesting word in the Chumash, because in many different, uh, many different settings, there's multiple meanings, pokad. What is to remember? To remember. Hashem pokad et sarak hasher amar. That's to remember. Another is to redeem, to save. Right? Another is to count. Chumash ha, the book of numbers. Chumash ha pakudim. Ha pakudim, to count. So it's to, to count to remember, to, uh, to, 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 to redeem, right? I would say that the, in English they're related words. Pakad can mean something additional, which is, uviyom pakdi, on the day that I take account, they will be held accountable, right? To punish. Pakad, right? Here means to punish. On the day that I take them into... In English you say, I would hold them accountable. So the word counting, pakad means to count. It also means to hold accountable. It also means to remember, which in English is another word for remember, to recount. To recount. So in English we have that. We have to recount, to count, and to be held accountable. The word pakad has all those meanings. I don't have time now. Next time, maybe I'll start with that to explain the, the deep significance of this phrase, Uviyom Pakti, So next time, we'll continue with this. I, I can't spend, we can spend a year on the story. I don't want to do that, but it is, I think, the central story of the Chumash, actually, this story. But, yeah. In, in this week's Haftarah, um, I think the word is, is mentioned in reference to David. I think that's true. I, mean, I think that is correct. Let's take a look at that. I mean, Machachodesh. Let's just find that. Machachodesh. Let me find that. Is it chapter 20 or 21? Let me just see what that is. Chapter 20. Yes, let's see. Yes. It's on page 618. 618? Right. Yes, so David means that, right, David is held accountable. In other words, David is assigned a certain seat. He's missing. So he's, he's, I would say he is, his absence has been noticed. His absence has been, has been noticed. Maybe Charles taking attendance. But that's, that's, a, that's it's probably, it's, it's so related to being held accountable. Because when David doesn't show up the second day, the first day, 
Saul says maybe he's impure. Maybe it's an accident. On the second day when the place is held by Yipokeid, right? David is in fact, it's a good word, but the exact definition is, let's see, what they translate over here. They say remain vacant, empty. That's why it would be empty, but clearly the choice of a Yipokeid here is to say exactly as the Chumash says, on the day of when I take it, when I take it into account, I would say his his absence is noticed, right? Because that's the day being held account. Since he's missing, right? Since he's missing, he's he's going to be punished. On the day that I on the day that I count them, God says, I hold it, count them. I notice them. To count means to take notice. On the day I can take notice, I will hold them accountable. So the same thing with David. When David's absence is noticed, he's truly missing. Maybe the first day he's not there, he's not really missing, because maybe he couldn't be there. But the second day when he's not there, that means he chose not to be there. So he's like, ah, he didn't show up to the king's table. When you don't show up to the king's table, that's treasonous. So therefore David can be put to death for that.